0: in this passage, if you know the controversy, and since you guys are in ministry, I want to bring out the controversy, but I want to tell you that there's an other side to the controversy. Uh, Ezekiel 28 uh, verse 2 is an interesting uh, verse. It's the son of man. Now, I know in the King James, it's a little different, but you'll still have a difference. I don't care what translation you use, you'll find that what I'm saying, it may translate this word differently, but there's going to be a real difference. So here it goes. It's the son of man, Say unto the prince of Tyrus, okay, now he's called prince in the Hebrew. I don't know what yours calls that. Now, he's talking here about a real literal ruler at Tyrus. He was an actual ruler. But when he comes now to verse 11, he switches. And this is significant. He's not talking here about a physical ruler of Tyrus. Did the physical ruler of Tyre was he ever the angel over the throne of God? Did he walk in the stones of fire in Eden? No, there's a breakdown. But what it says here, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a a lamentation upon what? The king of Tyre. The Hebrew word changes. And what it's saying here is that there is a physical ruler, but behind the physical ruler, there is a ruler ruling the physical ruler. Do you understand what I'm saying? There is a spiritual being behind the physical ruler. When I had the opportunity of speaking to judges and congressmen and senators and everything on spiritual warfare, which was, I never dreamed that would ever happen. What a wonderful opportunity to let these men that are making decisions in our country realize that in Ephesians, it says, principalities, powers, and rulers of darkness of this world. I believe the rulers of darkness of this world are demons who have been uh, assigned to leaders, to to influence their decisions so the decisions they make will extend the kingdom of darkness. That there are behind leaders and that's why we're told to do what? Pray for leaders. And that's what it's saying here. That here is a physical leader but behind him is who? Satan seeking to influence this king to make decisions that would be for whose favor? Satan's favor. Look at our Supreme Court. Look at the decisions that, that are being made all over the world that are frightening. You know that you can see the enemy is at work in the lives of, of, of rulers. Now he says, I says to him, thus saith the Lord, thou sealeth up the sum, you are full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. He's talking about one here was God's absolute most beautiful of all of God's creation was this anointed chair. If you wanted to see the the creative ability of God to create an absolute beautiful being, that was this creature. And he said that thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, the topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, gold, and the workmanship of thy tablets and thy pipes was prepared in thee that thou thou the day that thou was created some interesting things here satan was an angel of what light did light come on him or did light come from him light came from him and over him he had a covering of woven in fact cef did a thing on satan and we sent it off to a theologian to be sure that we were drawing him right because let me tell you every time you visualize a picture for either a non-reader or a child, you better be accurate. Because that picture will stick with them the rest of their life. See, what you show them sticks. I mean, when, the first time I ever, you know, do it, and we said, we've got to be accurate. Like in creation, we sent it to a creation. How do you draw creation before there was light? You know, what it, would it be like? Are we accurate? I mean, I, you can't believe. Do you know that every CEF story goes, went to Charles Ryrie to check out, went to, uh, who was the president of Dallas? Um, Pentecost or, or Walvard and to other seminaries, they checked out our lessons. Went through nine theologians. These are lessons for little kids. No, amazing. You didn't know that, did you? That's why they cost a little bit. <laughs> but they're accurate. Let me tell you, they're accurate. We want to be sure the child gets, you don't want to lead a child astray if you read the scriptures. You want to be sure you're giving them straight out. And in our drawings, that when we would visualize, the kids would see what was accurate. So if you visualize stuff, Really be sure that you're giving the kids the right picture. Or adults, it's the same thing if they can't read. You can get them way off on something that's not true. So if you could see Satan standing there and light coming from him with a garment of woven gold with all these precious stones, can you imagine what it looked like? It looked like the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven with all those stones, all the colors coming from him. And then if you go to a doctor, we have a medical doctor here, but if you go to a medical doctor because, uh, and ask that uh, you think you're having pipes and tablets problems, and if they could do something with your pipes and tablets, you'll find that we don't have them. But if you look at those, and I know that some of the translations have dropped it out because they had a hard time with them, you know what they are? Two Hebrew words for musical instruments. And the thought here is light and music flowed from Satan. I mean, he was a very beautiful creature. And uh, he's been into music all the time. You know what? Dr. McGee was my pastor. You know what he said? When Satan fell from heaven, he fell in the choir loft. (laughs) I think he had some trouble with some of the choirs in the churches or something. (laughs) But Satan, you know, uh, it's interesting. I know there's a lot of music controversy, but I remember years ago hearing this statement on the radio. And they said, if you can control the music of a nation, you can control a nation. When I taught at uh, Calvary Bible College, we, we, we taught a course in how the, the students might develop the, the character of Christ while they were at school. And one of the things we brought in, we brought in a music therapist from a mental hospital who was like 27, because when I talked about music, you know, I was out of it, because at that time I was 50, what would a 50-year-old man know about music? You know, I was too old to be credible. But we had a young gal who had a master's degree working with, out where they were, the mental hospital, Shawnee Mission Mental Hospital, teenagers, playing music for disturbed teenagers, and how she would play praise songs on her guitar and sing scripture and calm down these mental patients that's also music that you can stir them up with in fact uh, you that get my prayer letter realize that we've been working with uh, satanists exiting satanism and uh, we had one fellow whose father is a pastor was uh, got involved in satanism when he was seven years old in a baptist church through the youth group there uh, when his father left him and he got involved through this youth pastor and was ten years in three different covens And he was not a self-styled. Most of the people we see are self-styled Satanists. You know, they get a book and they cut like the kid that was cutting his arm and letting the blood run. This kid couldn't do that. This kid could not have long hair. He could not have earrings. There was no way that he could dress in any way that would reflect that he was identifying with any kind of rebellion. And yet he was recruiting on three different high school campuses kids into Satanism. involved in all kinds of horrible things. When they moved and tried to get out of it, they would change their phone. They were in a different state. I mean, they were—they moved from Texas to another—I don't want to identify the state he's in—but in another state, and they would get an unlisted phone, and the day later they would get telephone calls from the satanic group on their phone asking for their son, and they did that three times. They changed their number in less—you know—they changed it one day. The next day they had the phone number calling them. It's unbelievable. But anyway, this boy in their particular group, they always use live music to call spirits because they will not have a service until a spirit manifests itself and then they can have their satanic worship service and they always use live music and they always use rock music. Music, uh, I don't know about here. In Africa, uh, with the American Indians, they use music to call spirits and people that hear that music know exactly what they're doing. In Africa, you could walk by this place and when you hear the music coming over the wall, see, it's not all music there's special music they use to call spirits. And they know, when I was sharing this with these 10 leaders serving the 10 countries, we had about 100 leaders from 10 Western African countries, an African guy jumped up and he started doing the music. He said, what is it? And everybody's going, oh, oh, don't do it. You know, don't do that music. Because he was calling spirits. And they knew from these ten countries that when they played that kind of music, they're inviting spirits. So it was interesting as we dealt with this boy and asked him questions and so on. So if you got my prayer letter, you, you, you got that whole thing of, of music and, 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 and the demonic. So we realized there's music in demonic here. There's always been music in the enemy. And there's music in the enemy today. That's going on. Um, then he goes on. And he says thou art the anointed cherub that covereth i have set thee so thou was upon the mountain of god Thou walks up and down in the midst of the stones of fire Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee what was it what was the thing that caused satan to be cast out of heaven what was it must have been a very terrible thing that he must have done for god to remove him from his presence and he says, by the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled the midst of thee with violence And thou hast sinned, therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mount of God. I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. And verse 17 gives us the first glimpse. What did he do? Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by the reason of thy brightness, and I will cast thee to the ground. I'll lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. What was it? It was pride. Pride is the absolute worst sin that any christian can never get involved in and we're going to prove it okay we got uh, a lot to look at tonight look at isaiah 14 isaiah 14 verse 12 through 14 how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son, of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend unto the heavens. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation on the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Now, if you read that just real quickly, and I have people read it, and I say, now, don't look at it, but tell me, who did Satan say this to? He said it to himself. And that is very, very significant because the most important conversations we have, we have with ourselves. The most important thing you say, you say to yourself. Do a study through Scripture on that. It's interesting. I did. Every time the Scripture says, a man speaketh in his heart. It says a fool says things in his heart. A wicked man says certain things in his heart. A righteous man says certain things in his heart. See, if I wanted to know what you were really like, what we should do, and we've got it here. See this machine? It's not what it looks like. We've got a chair. We're going to put it up here. We want one of you to sit here. This machine will project your thoughts today that you've had on the board. And, you know, since you're missionaries and godly people, uh, we would like to see what you were thinking about. Because if we know what you're thinking about, we know what you are. Because as a man thinketh in his heart, what? So is he. And so Satan never had to outwardly. God knew what was going on inside. In fact, one thing we learned in, our, in raising our four children, that we discipline them for attitudes before actions. Nip it in the bud, right? You know when they roll their eyes, you know how kids, can teenagers do that? You know what I'm saying? They got it, and we straighten our eyes out. <laughs> But the key, I will, they're all key, they really are. But for our study, the key, I will, here's the last one. I will be like the Most High. And it tells us what he meant. What did he mean when he said, I want to be like the Most High? He didn't say, I want to be like Jehovah Jireh. He didn't say, I want to be, you know, he picked a name for God so we would know what he meant. There would be no doubt what he was talking about here. Now, the Most High is El Elyon. And El Elyon, I know, has a number of meanings. But one of the meanings of El Elyon is the sovereign one that reigns in heaven and on the earth. And what was Satan saying? He was saying, I want to be like God in what? In being the final authority in my own life. See, I want to decide what I will do and not do. Fred Dickinson said it better than anybody... He said this, Satan has sold his rebellious philosophy to man and rules over all who have fallen into sin. He promotes with a vengeance and by multiplied means his concept of creature-centered living. See, he wanted to be like God in control, but not in character. And where are we today? Everybody wants to be the final authority in their own life. And when I do that, when life revolves around I, which is the middle letter of pride, what am I doing? I'm taking my stand with the enemy. And I'm headed for tremendous struggles. Let us look at God's judgment on pride. Now, you could do a a, a more in-depth study. We're just going to look at every reference of pride in Proverbs. What does God say about pride? In Proverbs, you get enough. And he said, that's enough in there. You say, God really doesn't like it, does he? No, he doesn't. Turn to Proverbs 6, 16. These six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination unto him. So God has given a list of seven things he hates. And it's a list that we would never put together ourselves. We would have alcoholism and drug addicts and homosexuality, and we would have put all kinds of things on this list, but they're not there. The very first thing on this list is what? Pride in the countenance. A proud look. God says, I hate it. That's number one on His hate list. I hate it, because pride in the heart will be reflected where? Eventually in the countenance, because the face reveals what's in the heart. And so a proud look. Look at Proverbs eight thirteen. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And the very first evil he lists is what? Pride and arrogancy and the evil way in the forward mouth do I hate. Proverbs eleven two. When pride cometh, then cometh shame, but with the lowliest wisdom. Now, God doesn't tell us why, but what does he tell us here? He tells us here something about some men who have recently fallen... From ministry. Didn't he? What was their problem? Was it a moral problem? No. That was not the root of their problem. Their problem was what? What brought him to shame? Immorality? That's not what God says. What did he say came what brought him to shame? Pride brought him to shame. They're tremendous statements. Proverbs thirteen, ten. Only by pride comes contention. Now I know that if you have a New American, if you have an NIV, I think a New American calls it pride here. But we pick this verse up later on. The NIV doesn't, but you get another one that says the same thing later on, and they choose to translate it pride. But when you see people that aren't getting along, what's at the, the bottom of them? Pride, God says. Look at uh, Proverbs 15:25. The Lord will destroy the house of the proud. And it won't be a Guatemalan earthquake. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the family of a proud man will be destroyed. It's serious. When a man wants to be what? The final authority in his life, he's going to lose his children. When God is the final authority in a man's life, then then God will... That, the family are go. And I, I know there, there's some here maybe that, whose kids are not what they, all that you would like them to be at this present time, right? It's possible. But did you train them upright? You know, God, are they still alive? Is God through with them? Can God reach down and touch them? And because what happened to the slave trader, remember, what's his name? Newton. Remember the ship was going down? And he remembered his mother's knee that she had shared the gospel with him and he decided the ship was going down he was going up. And all of a sudden he remembered all the teaching his mother had given him. Train up a child in the way should go and when he's old he won't depart. But God will destroy the house of the proud and we have to realize this far reaching effect. Verse uh, chapter 16 verse 5 is probably the strongest verse about pride that you're going to find in all the Bible. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Everyone. Regardless of who they are. And abomination, isn't that one of the the strongest words in the Old Testament that there is? I mean, in the English it is. And I know that maybe some of you had wrestled with that word. I mean, how do you translate abomination? Stinks. Stinks? I think it's stronger than stinks. Okay. You know, it's really a strong word, isn't it? Ugh, yeah, abomination to the Lord. Look at Proverbs 16:18. Everyone quotes this one, they usually quote it wrong, but they know it there. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16:18. So we know if pride is not dealt with, it will eventually bring a man to what? A fall. Pride, not the immorality, not whatever caused him to fall, but beneath that there's a pride issue that caused him to fall. Proverbs 28:25. A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Now, the the question we ought to ask is this. How does that work? He doesn't tell us how it works. He just said that Satan had pride in, he cast him out from his presence. He said a man has pride in his life, he will fall. There'll be shame, there'll be uh, uh, contention, there'll be strife. There'll be all these kinds of things that will happen in a man's life that doesn't deal with pride. But what's the dynamics of it? How does it fit? And that's what we want to look at. And we want to look at the Proverbs of the New Testament, which is uh, what book? James. So let's go to the book of James, chapter 4. And let's look and see how this all fits together. Verse 6. James 4, 6. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he said, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, if you were in my counseling room, I'd, or you would have read that verse, and I'd say, what does God give? Wrong. Read it again. What does God give? More grace. Isn't there a difference between grace and more grace? What would you rather have, grace or more Grace. What would you rather have, cruceros or whatever it is, or more cruceros, <laughs> you know, more cruceros, you know, money or more money, grace or more grace. What is it? What is grace? What is this thing that I have more of? And that is a real key, and we always ask definitions, and everybody always gives us the unmerited favor of God, or they give us something like that, and I say, well, that doesn't explain it. There is, I believe, a good working definition of grace that will help you to get your, your fingers on grace that just, uh, I think, is perfect. And if you put it into a man is saved by grace, he's kept saved by grace, you take this verse and apply it, it fits so beautifully. And that's Philippians. Well, look at Philippians 1, six, which is, that's not the verse, but it's on the way there, uh, that gives you the sort of the first setting of this. Uh, being confident of this very thing, he that hath begun a good work in you will what? Perform it unto the day of Christ. So we're told in Philippians chapter 1 that God is working where? In us. But he doesn't say there what he's doing. He just says, I'm working in you. He starts the theme. You get to chapter 2 and he says, this is what I'm doing in you. So chapter 2, verse 13, to me is one of the key verses in all the New Testament. For it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. What does that mean? God is at work in my life and he's given me the desire and the power to please him in any life situation. I was saved by what? God gave me what? The desire to want to become a believer and he gave me the ability to receive his son. And it was not any works on my part. It was truly what? A working of God. It's grace. And what will God give me? More what? Grace. So whatever I face, I know one thing, that there will be, God will give me a greater desire and God will give me greater power to choose. To choo- what I would choose would please him. Right? So I don't have to worry that there's going to be some type of a temptation tomorrow. There's going to be some kind of a situation that I'm going to face that all I can do is fail. No, I can't. No. Why? There is more grace. Now, if that is true, why are there so many losers on the winning team? Because God resists who? The proud. See, and I see a big hand coming out of heaven. And what would cause God to resist one of his children? You know what God does when we let pride come into our life? He removes the empowering to live the Christian life from us. And what will happen? A fall. Doesn't that make sense? See, that's why. Hmm? Right, we need to be humbled. God gives grace to the humble. A proud man says, God, don't worry about me, doesn't he? you don't need to worry about me. A humble man says, God, without you, I'm not going to make it. I need your empowering in my life. I need you. I need you working in my life. If I'm going to walk in victory, I need you. Now let's go on. So God gives more grace. In verse 7, he says, and there's a divine order here, a very important order. Now we're really getting into spiritual warfare. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Remember, submit means to rank under. Get under. And from the place of... uh, That's James 4, 7... So get under God, and from the place of submitting God, after I've humbled myself before God, asked for his empowering in my life, that I might have his grace, get under God's authority, and from that place, what can I do? Resist the devil, and he'll go away. Resist means push aside, not to allow to remain, stay, or enter. I can shut him away when I am submitted to God. But if I am resisting God, I'm going to be submitting to who? The enemy. And what makes me resist God? Because I want to retain the right to be the boss of that area of my life. Remember we said what Warren Risby said? Anytime that you shove God away from any area of your life, the enemy will take that as a target area to begin to control. You will not remain in control. And that's, Jesus said that. If you shove the Lord away, You will not keep it. The enemy will come in and begin to take that. And that area of your life will be will destroy you. Eventually, it will destroy you. Now, let me ask you this question. Why is it that we often don't recognize the enemy's involvement in our life until we're defeated? Isn't that a good question? You know, why is it here I'm laying in the ground all beat up, half in the gutter, and my nose is in the mud, and I think, I think maybe the enemy is involved in this. (laughs) I am totally defeated. See, I can't resist the enemy if I can't detect his presence, can I? And the question is, why don't we recognize the enemy's involvement in temptations? And James chapter 1 tells us why. See, he tells us why we don't recognize that. Look at James 1, 12, and we'll look through this thing. It, it tells us something very important here. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, that goes clear through it. For when he is tried, he will see the crown of life, which the Lord has promised them that love him. I think this verse is saying, if you love the Lord, you will resist Defeat. It's a sign of loving the Lord, is enduring temptation, going through it in a proper way and not giving in. Let no man say when he's tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempt any man. Now this is a rule of thumb, and I know it can break down, but it's a simple thing. How can I tell the difference between a temptation and a trial? A temptation is designed by the enemy to draw me away from God. A trial is designed by God to draw me to himself. Now, if I fail the trial, I can go into sin. Abraham, will you offer Isaac? He could have said what? No. He could have been disobedient to God. But the purpose of that whole thing is so Abraham would learn a new aspect of God's character. He got to meet Jehovah Jireh. Because he went clear through that time and God revealed a new part of himself he never would have known. So it was a trial for Abraham to go through and then God gave a new name and he knew that there would be one who would supply a sacrifice. Now, back on here in James uh, chapter 1, he said, Let no man say when he's tempted, he's tempted of God, for God cannot tempt thee and neither tempt any man, but every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. When sin is finished, it bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. The key is in verse 14. The reason you and I do not recognize the enemy's involvement in our temptation is this. He only tempts me to do what I would secretly do anyway. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own secret desires and enticed. Think about it. I I try to describe this. I remember I was talking to a pastor on the phone and trying to explain this to him, and I said, if you were walking downtown and you got the thought to unzip your pants and expose yourself to the people, what would you do? And he said, Logan, I can't believe that. That's my problem. And I'm going, oh, no, wrong illustration. (laughs) (laughs) Because most people say, I'd laugh. That is so wild, you know. That's wild. I wouldn't do that. That's why you don't get the thought. Isn't that right? That's why you don't get the thought. Satan doesn't waste temptation. He tempts us in the areas where he knows we're vulnerable. And we don't recognize it because what? It fits me. I'll tell you, if you can get this, it's super. I mean, if if you pick up from now to the end of what we're looking at, you may have a whole lot more victory in your life. When you realize how the enemy works. And the areas of my life I don't want to deal with, I'm in trouble. And we don't always deal with everything right away, do we? Don't we struggle over some areas sometimes? And I'll tell you, the enemy will put all kinds of pressure for us to hold on to that area of our life so we'll be defeated. Now, how do we deal with temptation? You know, it's interesting in the Bible, we are never told... To resist temptation its not a verse i keep reading keep looking i haven't found one we're told to resist the tempter there's a difference when i resist temptation where's my focus on the very thing that trips me up is that to be the focus of the christian life the thing that constantly defeats me no i'm to look under who jesus and i'm to see behind the temptation there's the tempter. What does the tempter do? He tempts me. What did it say in Thessalonians? Paul was so concerned lest the tempter had come and tempted them and his labor be in vain. Jesus met who? The tempter. That's what he does. That's what he is about. And we are to resist what? the devil we're going to look at first peter 5 where we're told again to do the very same thing and look at the principle of the roaring lion and what all that means that's an excellent passage of scripture there about his devouring us and all that kind of stuff but we're to resist the enemy and i'd like you to look at luke 4 and we can learn something here luke 4 and, and, and matthew 4 you know are the uh the chapters on uh, being tempted. In fact, you should probably put them both together when you look, but we'll just look at Luke. Luke 4, it says, Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the, in the wilderness. In Matthew, it makes it very clear. He was led by the Spirit of God in the wilderness for one purpose. What was that purpose? To be tempted of the devil. Because you know something? It's not a sin to be tempted. That's a major deception of the enemy. You thought it, you might as well what? Do it, but guess what? It didn't even come from my thinking process. It came from him. I want to say something that causes everybody to react, and you can react if you like, but I've been here a while. Think it through before you walk out. I believe that Jesus had wrong thoughts. And I think the passage proves it. Because what Satan talked to the Lord Jesus, did he not? Isn't that what it says here? Did Jesus hear him? In his mind, he heard what he said. How do we know he heard what he said? By the way, he answered. It says Jesus has been tempted in all points like we. If Jesus did not have wrong thoughts, there is no hope for us. Because every single temptation is first a thought. But the enemy spoke to the Lord. You know what, what did the Lord do? He used specific scriptures. We're learning here about resisting. He, all scripture is profitable, isn't it? All scripture is inspired, but he didn't say God created. That's inspired scripture. But he used scripture that fit. The enemy attacked him, and Jesus counterattacked. And the thing that is interesting here, the scripture he used was a rhema, not logos. Jesus did not quote scripture word perfect. He quoted principles from the Old Testament. One time I know I was dealing with a missionary, and voices were speaking out of this missionary. It was a terrible situation. And I quoted a verse, and the missionary folded his arms, and remember it wasn't the missionary, folded his arms, and, and I said, in the name of Jesus, leave, real. And I thought, I'm in trouble, I don't know why. But obviously, something's not going on here. And I said, in the name of the Lord Jesus, get out of him. And the voice spoke out of him and says, I don't have to go. I said, why? He said, you quoted the verse wrong. Well, I had quoted the verse wrong. It was in Mark, I quoted the wrong verse. The enemy knew that I didn't know that we use Ramos. I thought we use Logos. So I'm trying to find that verse. So I can quote it right instead of saying, you know, but he was doing a number on me. Let me tell you, the enemy knows scripture. He knows the word. And so Jesus, and you know what? One verse didn't do it for the Lord. Did you realize that? See, one verse, and the enemy came back again, and the Lord gave a specific verse, and the enemy came back again, and the Lord gave a specific verse, and then the enemy left. So first Jesus was filled with the Spirit, then he was led by the Spirit to be attacked by the forces of darkness, and he used specific scripture against, and these were needs. Weren't they genuine needs in the Lord at this particular time? He used really desires, a desire to eat. He used real desires. They were not wrong desires, they were in the Lord. but he used natural desires and trying to fulfill those desires ahead of God's timing here. And then verse 13 says, "And when the devil ended all the temptation, he departed for a season, and the Satan left the Lord Jesus until an opportune time. Let me tell you something. When it's Satan's opportune time, it's not yours. And that's what he's waiting for. He's waiting until it's not your opportune time to come in with destructive temptation. I think about that a lot. I think, thank God it's there. It's a reminder. He comes at the wrong time in our house. He comes at the wrong time in our ministry. When I'm ready for him, he doesn't show up. And when everything's going wrong, he seems to know to come around and give us trouble. But look at verse 14. Jesus returned, what? In the power of the Spirit. See, first came the dove, and then came the devil. See, Jesus was filled with the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. He came to grips with the forces of darkness. And the result of that was what? He returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. It was a powerful experience in his life. It doesn't have to be a terrible experience to grapple with the forces of darkness and to see God bring a victory in your life. Well, what is God's solution to this? And we talked about pride. We saw how terrible it is. It was a thing that Satan did. It's a thing he's promoting like crazy here, that we would live self-centered lives because we will fall. Our families will be destroyed. All those judgments in Proverbs, we see that it causes the empowering of God to come off our life, and we don't have any more grace at all. All we have is God resisting us because we want to do our thing. When we want to do it, we want to be the final authority in our life and so on. And when we do that, we take our stand with the enemy. But what is God's solution? What is it, the thing that God wants me to do to deal with a pride issue? And I think you find it in Luke chapter 9. You also find it in Matthew and some of the other Gospels, but look at Luke chapter 9. I think Jesus put it in a nutshell. So we're going over this whole thing and she's laying there in the coffin and what kind of effect does it have on her? None because she's dead. Let's look at Luke 9.23 here. Jesus said unto them all, If any man will come unto me, let him what? Deny himself and take up his cross, how often? Daily Daily and follow me. See, uh, uh, pride is what? Someone who is living their life for what? Self. Self is on the throne. Self is what is important. Jesus said, either you're going to follow self or you're going to follow who? Me. You can't follow both. If you follow self, the empowering for victory will be removed from your life. If you're willing to die and follow me, I will give you what? More grace. The desire and the power to live a godly life. And so I think you can put it very, very simply. Every day, I need to make this decision early in the morning. Lord, I want to say no to me and yes to you. I think that puts it right down as what he was saying. No to self and yes to you. Because whosoever will save his life and not give it to the Lord, well, what happened? He'll lose it. But who shall say, Lord, I want to follow you today and I want to do your thing today. I want to be your person today. I want to honor you today. The person who will lose his life, for the Lord's sake, you know, for my sake, the same shall save it. That's what Jim Elliot said. Remember, he just twisted it a little different, but that's what he was saying. And so it's a daily decision. Pride is something that doesn't die once and for all. It's something that wants to raise its ugly head all the time. It's something you and I have to constantly guard against because all of a sudden we're going to find that the power is gone from our walk and our life. And as soon as we sense, we ought to ask, Lord, is there a point of pride in my life? Show me what it is. What is it? Because I want to take that and put it under your control. I don't want to be resisting you. Lord, I want to be submissive to you, and from that point, I want to be able to resist the enemy. And when I resist him, what will he do? What does God promise? Resist the enemy and he will go. That's a promise. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the teaching. Lord, we've been looking at the things that divide our hearts. And Lord, we know the greatest divider of all is a prideful, self-centered life. Lord, we don't look on the things and the needs of others. We look on our needs and our things. Lord, help us to have the mind of Christ. Help us to truly, as Philippians talks about, look at others and be concerned and have a heart for others and reach out to others. Lord, show us the need of every day making a decision to say no to self and yes to you. That you would be glorified in our lives. That, Father, that we would begin to see greater and greater walk of victory in our own lives. That we might realize the empowering for the Christian life is from your spirit that is poured through us when we're yielded to you. Thank you, Father, for what you want to do in and through each of our lives here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and we look and see how we could have lived in his power and how we did live you know the the difference between what I could have been and what I did I say boy you know I just so often did not draw from his grace Satan wants you to enter into spiritual warfare in the flesh He wants you to make determinations, so I'll never do that again. You know, all of that. And he knows as soon as he gets you on that level, he's got you. Because if you don't do it, the flesh won. If you do do it, the flesh won. There's no empowering of God. And we need to humble ourselves before God. And when we do, he'll empower our life to handle whatever is going to take place. So we don't have to walk in fear. Because my God is more powerful than anything I'm going to face.